Hey there, thanks for listening. Before we jump into this episode, I just want to remind you that this episode is brought to you by us over at TalkPython Training and Brian through his PyTest book. So if you want to get hands-on and learn something with Python, be sure to consider our courses over at TalkPython Training. Visit them via pythonbytes.fm slash courses. And if you're looking to do testing and get better with PyTest, check out Brian's book at pythonbytes.fm slash PyTest. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. It's episode 255, recorded October 20th, 2021. I'm Brian Ockin. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Will McGuigan. Welcome, Will. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm sure people know who you are through uh, through all you do with with uh, Textual and Rich. Could you do a quick intro? Um, sure, yeah. I'm a software developer uh, from Edinburgh, Scotland. Last couple of years, been working quite heavily in open source. Um, I built built Rich, and I started work on Textual, uh, which is uh, application framework using Rich. And I'm currently um, working exclusively on that. So I've um, taken uh, a year off, um, probably more than that, to to work on uh, open source projects. I'm very excited about that. We're excited about it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fa- that's fantastic, Will. I think. We've talked about this offline as well, the the success you're having with Rich and Textual and your this opportunity you have to really just double down on this project you created. And I know there must be thousands of maintainers of projects out there. Like if I could just put all my energy into this and you're currently lucky enough to be in that situation, right? That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate, actually. I mean, I'm, I put some money aside, I planned uh, for this year, um, but things are, are really um, looking up. And I've been blown away by the, the level of interest from it. I mean, um, it, it gradually ramped up with Rich. Um, people people like that. I think there was a there was a, a missing niche or something which which did that. Uh, but then with the textual, um, people were really excited about it. I mean, um, I put a disclaimer on, on on the readme that said it's not quite ready for prime time yet. Um, it might break and is in like active development, but um, it doesn't seem to discourage anyone. <laughs> very, very busy uh, <laughs> building things with it. Um, so I, I'm excited. I, I want to um, like take it to, to the next level. And to be honest, if I was doing it part-time like I was doing Rich, um, it would just take uh, too long. Um, if it was evening and weekends, it would be two, two years before it was like um, 1.0. Yeah, and we're ready to use it now. So Yeah, <laughs> most people want to use it yesterday. <laughs> Congrats again on that. That's cool. It's great stuff. You know, we've talked about it over on Talk Python. If people want to dive in, we've certainly covered it many times over here as well. So we're happy to spread the word on it. Yeah, well, Michael, great, let's thanks. kick off the topics. I do want to kick it off. All right. How about we start with some awesome Python topic like C++? I like both of them. <laughs> you, This is right in your wheelhouse, Brian. Uh, a lot of C++. So I want to talk about this tutorial article series, however you want to think about it, of wrapping C++ code with Cython. So the interoperability story with C and Python being C Python as the runtime is pretty straightforward, right? But C++ is a little more interesting with classes and this pointers and all those kinds of things. So the basic idea is Cython is this thing that allows us to write very nearly Python code and sometimes actually just Python code, sometimes like in a little extended language of Python that then compiles down to C. And if that's the case, well, it's it's probably pretty easy to get that Cython code to work with C code. And then Cython naturally 
is exposed as Python objects and variables and whatnot. So that should be a good bridge between C++ and Python, right? And it turns out it is. So this person, Anton Zedan Pushkin, wrote an article or is working on a series of articles called Wrapping C++ with Cython. And so there's this library called Yarkerl, yet another audio recognition library. And it's kind of like Shazam. It'll, you give it a small fragment of audio and it'll say, oh, that's Pearl Jam Black, you know, Black by Pearl Jam or something like that, right? Pretty cool. And if you look at it, it's got some neat C++ features. You know, Brian, feel free to jump in on this, but see that right there? Namespace, so cool. I, I love um, how they're writing like well-structured C++ code here. But basically there's a couple of structures like a WAV file and an MP3 file and then classes which have like a fingerprint and public methods and storage and so on. And so the idea is how could we take this and potentially make this a Python library, right? Basically create a Python wrapper with Cython for it. So I'm gonna come down here and says, all right, well, what we're gonna do is we're gonna write some Cython code and Cython doesn't immediately know how to take a C++ header file, which is where stuff is defined in C++ and turn that into things that Python understands. So you've got to write basically a little file, a PXD file that declares what the, the interface looks like. So you write code like this. Have you done this stuff before, Brian? No, but this looks pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. How about you, Will? Um, I've never wrapped a library, but I've used Cython uh, quite successfully. So it's a really good system. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Mm -hmm. I've done it, but not to wrap C++ code. No. So basically you do things like cdef extern from this header, create a namespace, and then you have cdef, a keyword cpp class, and then you get, what's interesting about this is you get to give it two names. As you get to say, here's the name, I want to talk about it in Python, so cpp wave file, and then here's its name in C, which is yar control colon colon wave file. And the value of this is they want to have a thing called wave file in Python, but not the C++ one, a friendly Python one, but it needs to use the wave file from the C library. So if you directly import it, then there's, there's like this name clash, which I suppose you could fix with namespaces and all. But I think it's cool that you can give it this name, this kind of this internal name, and off it goes, right? So then you def, you def out its methods, basically like just here are the, func the functions of the class. Same thing for the fingerprint and the storage. And off it goes. And so all of this stuff is pretty neat. And yeah, this, this thing I'm talking about is called aliasing, aliasing, which is pretty awesome. Like it lets you reserve the name wave file and storage and fingerprint and stuff like that for your Python library without, even though that's what the C names are as well. So yeah, pretty straightforward. What was the next thing I really want to highlight? There's kind of this long article here. So um, the next thing they talk about is using this thing called um, extension types. So an extension is just a C structure or C++ library, and you create some, some class that is kind of a proxy to it. So here we say cdef Python class called storage, and then internal it has, uh, in Cython language, you have to say cdef, it has a C++ class called this. And then from then on, you just go and write standard Python code. And anytime you need to talk to the C library, you just work with the this like inner pointer thing that you've created, which is pretty awesome. You just new one up in the constructor and the C++ thing. And then like it goes off to Python's memory management. So you don't have to worry about deleting it, um, stuff like that. Um, I guess you do have to sort of deallocate here, but that's, you know, once you write that code, then um, Python will just take it from there, right? So 
pretty neat a way to do this. And you know, the library goes on to talk about how you use it and so on. So there's some, a couple of interesting things about like dereferencing the the pointer, like basically modeling reference types in Python. But if you've got a C++ library that you want to integrate here, I think this is a pretty cool hands-on way to do it with Cython. Yeah, I think this looks fun. I'd like to give it a try. Yeah, definitely. Uh, another one is um, PyBind11. That might also be another option to look at. So I saw Henry uh, out into in the live stream there. So here's another way to operate operate between seamlessly between C plus plus eleven and Python. So um, another another option in this realm. Maybe I'll throw that link into the show notes as well. But yeah, a lot of cool stuff for taking these libraries written in C plus plus and turning them into Python friendly, feeling Python native libraries. Well, and you know that's that's really how a lot of Python's taken off, right? Is because we've been able to take these super powerful C++ libraries and wrap a Python interface into it and have them stay up to date. When you make updates to the to the C and C++ code, you can get updates to the Python. Um, you sometimes hear Python described as a, a glue language. I think uh, many years ago, um, that's probably what it was. I think Python is growing. It's more than just a glue language, but it's very good at um, connecting other languages it, together it's still good as a glue language yeah, though. still yeah <laughs> it's not just a glue language it's a, a language of its own i guess yeah. yeah yeah i was talking to somebody over on talk python and i'm super sorry if i forgot which conversation this was but they described python as a glue language for web development i thought okay that's kind of a weird way to think of it but all right said well no no look here's what you do with your web framework you glue things together you glue your database over to your network response, you glue an API call into that. And I'm like, yeah, actually, that's kind of is what a website is. It talks to databases, it talks to mm. external APIs, it talks to the network in terms of like HTML responses, and and that's the entire web framework. But yeah, you can kind of <laughs> even think of those things in that mm. those terms there. It's like a like a party where no one's talking to each other, and you need someone to like uh, start conversations. That's what Python does. Yeah, yeah, and I think also. That that's why Python is so fast for web frameworks. You know, even though computationally it's not super fast, like it's it's mostly spending a little time in its own code, but a lot of time it's like, oh, I'm waiting on the database, I'm waiting on the network, I'm waiting on an API, and uh, that's where web apps spend their time anyway. So it doesn't matter. All right, Brian, you want to grab the next one? Yeah, sure. Bump, bump um, it on to uh, topic two. Bump it on. So um, I've got I I just have a few packages that I support on uh, PyPI. And then a whole bunch of internal packages that I work on. And one of the things that is a checklist that I've got is what do I do when I bump the version? Um, and I know that there have been some automated tools before, but they've kind of, I don't know, they make too many assumptions, I think, um, about what how you structure your code. Um, so I was really happy to see uh, T-Bump come by. This was uh, suggested, by, suggested by Sefi Berry. But um, so T-Bump is an open source package that was developed Looks like it was developed in-house uh, by somebody, but then their employer said, hey, go for it, open source it. So that's cool. Um, and the idea really is uh, you just, you, you it's just uh, bump versions and that's it. But it does a whole bunch of cool stuff. It does, so let's say I've got, I've got to initialize it. So you initialize it, it has a little TOML file that it stores the information in and the configuration. But if you don't want yet another TOML file or another configuration, it can also append that to the, uh, project on there. I thought that was a nice nice addition. You can combine them or keep it separate, up to you. Um, and so, for instance, I tried it on one of my projects, uh, and I kept it separate because I didn't want to muck up my, my project.toml file. 
Um, but uh, it, once you initialize it, all you have to do when you want to add and bump a new version is just say uh, tbump and then give it the new version. Uh, it doesn't automatically count up. I mean, you could probably write a wrapper that counts up, but looking at your own version and deciding what the new one is is reasonable. That's a reasonable way to do it. Uh, and then it goes out and um, it uh, so it patches any versions you've got. And then in your code, in your code base or your files or config files or wherever. Um, and then uh, and then it, cre- it commits those changes. It adds a version tag, pushes your code, pushes the version tag. And then also you could have these optional run things, places where like before you commit, you can run some stuff. Like for instance, check to make sure that you've added that version to your change log or your if you want to check your documentation. So that's pretty um and then yeah, also you can have post actions. Cool. If you wanted to I was thinking a post action would be cool. You could just automatically tweet out, Hey, a new version is here. And somehow <laughs> hook that up, that'd be fun. Yeah, grab the first line out of the release notes and just tweet that. Yeah. And then <laughs> there's there's a the hard part really is how does how does it know where to change the version? Uh, and that's where part of the configuration, I think it's really pretty cool. It just has this, is this file configuration setting, if I can find it on here, um, that, uh, you, you list the source, um, and then you can also list like the configuration of it. Let me grab one. So like, uh, uh, the source and then, um, where, how to, how to look for it. So like it's a search string or something of what line to look for and then where to replace the version. And that's uh, pretty straight. I mean, you kind of have to do some hand tweaking to get this to work. But for instance, it's just a couple lines. Uh, it makes it pretty nice. I, I, at first, I thought, well, it's not that much work anyway, but it's way less work now. And then, frankly, I usually forget. I'll remember to push the version, but I'll forget to make sure that it, the version's in the change log. I'll forget to uh, push the tags to GitHub because I don't really use the tags, the version tags in GitHub, but I know other people do. Uh, so yeah, it's nice. nice. Yeah, Will, what do you think as someone who ships libraries frequently that matter? I think it's useful. I think for for my libraries, I've got the version in um, two places, two files. Um, so for me, it's like um, edit two files and I'm done. Um, probably wouldn't be like massive time saver, but I like the other things you can do with it. The the, yeah. the actions you can attach to it, like um, creating a a, a tag in, in in GitHub. So I do often quite often forget that, especially for like minor releases. Um, I, some, I sometimes forget that. So that's quite useful. Yeah, it's the extra stuff. It's not just changing the files, but like Brian described, like push, creating a branch, creating a tag, pushing all that stuff over, making sure they're in sync. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, good find. This does more than I expected when I saw the title. What we got next? Will. Yeah, okay. Take us so off on your first one. Uh, this is um, Close Ember, um, which is, uh, what's the list? Portmanteau is when you put two words together, uh, November and close. Um, the idea is to help um, open source maintainers um, close uh, issues and close PRs. So is this like to recover from the hangover of uh, Hacktober? Hacktober, I, I, I think so. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't do Hacktober this year. I didn't either, no. No, last year, I mean, um, I got a lot of PRs uh, coming in. Um, some of them were of a dubious quality. Um, some of them just, um, some of them are very good, actually. I did actually benefit a lot, um, but, but it does actually generate um, extra work. Uh, if you manage it, it it's really great. Um, but, but this is, it generates more work for you, even though it's, um, it's in your benefit. But Close Ember is purely to take 
uh, work away from you, work work away from maintainers. Um, you know, if there's lots of issues, I mean, I'm, I've been very busy lately and not kept an eye on the rich issues, and they've just piled up. Um, some of them can be closed with um, a little bit of effort. Um, so I think that's what this project is more of a movement than a project uh, designed to do. It's designed to um, take away some of that burden uh, from maintainers. And uh, it's, it's a very nice website here. Um, there's, a, there's a leaderboard and all different issues, and it describes um, what you should do to, to close issues and, and PRs. Uh, the author, uh, his name is Matthias Boussonier. I've probably mispronounced that. Um, he, he's, um, he's, he started this, and I think, he's, I think it's going to turn into a movement. Um, possibly uh, it's, it's too, too soon to, to really get big uh, this year, but I'm hoping that next year it, it'll be a big thing. It'll be um, after Hacktober you can relax a bit because someone uh, you'll get lots of people coming in to like uh, fix your your issues and, and clear some PRs and things like that. I mean, it's, sometimes it is maintenance. It's it's um, just um, tidying up, closing PRs which have been merged and 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 closing issues which have been fixed. That kind of thing. So I think it's a great thing. So I don't. I guess I don't quite get what it is. Is it a call out to people to help? maintainers yeah yeah it's like a, a month-long thing and it's like a, a almost like a competition that they've um yeah they got like a leaderboard it. right yeah 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 matthias is a core developer of um jupiter and ipython so he's definitely working on some of the main projects there yeah Great. He, he probably understands the the burden of um uh, open source uh, maintainer even if you love something um it, it can be <laughs> it can be hard hard work <laughs> Too much of a good thing, right? But no T-shirt for this, at least not this year. I don't think they offer T-shirts. No, maybe next year. I wonder yeah. if you can add your project to this. I think you, you can tag there. tag your project with Close Ember. I think that's how it works. Um, and then other people can search for it and decide which one they want to to help with. All right, that's cool. pretty cool. So another Brian, Brian Skin sent over. Thank you, Brian. You've been sending a ton of stuff our way lately, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, keep it um, coming. So this one is, the announcement is that scikit-learn goes 1.0. And if you look at the version history, it's been zero for zero ver for a long time with being, you know, 0.20, 0.21, 0.22, 0.0. So this release is really a realization that the library has been super stable for a long time, but here's a signal to everyone consuming scikit-learn that in fact, we intended, they intended to be stable right so there's certain groups and organizations that just perceive zero ver stuff as not finished especially in the enterprise space in the places that are not typically working in open source as much but are bringing these libraries in you can see managers like we can't use scikit-learn it's not even done zero zero dot 24 come on right so uh, this sort of closes that gap as well as signals that the api is pretty stable uh will um textual is not quite ready for this is it yet no it's, it's still on, on zero because i'm kind of advertising um that i might change a, a signature next version and and break your code never do that lightly um but it's always a possibility so if you use it if you use a zero point um version bit of anything you should probably pin that um and just make sure that if there's an update that you check your code um but right. as a consumer of rich or a consumer of flask or a consumer of whatever if you're using a zero ver, you're recommending you you pin that in your application or library that uses it, right? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you should, um, you might want to pin anyway, um, just to, you know, lots of bits of software working together. Uh, there could be problems with one update here that breaks this bit of software here. Um, but when you got 1.0, that's the, that's the library developer is telling you, um, I'm not going to break anything backwards compatibility without bumping that um, major version number. If they're using Semver, but because there's lots of other versioning uh, schemes that have the like pros and cons. Yeah, like calendar-based mm. versioning and stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that makes more sense in a live in an application than it does in a library. Uh, calendar versioning. I think I'm it not might sure calendar, do, how much it makes how much calendar versioning makes sense for libraries. Maybe it does. I don't know. I think projects that some projects that have shifted to Calver have recognized that they really are are almost never changing backwards compatibility. So, um, so it doesn't. They're never going to go to a, a, a higher number. Yeah, it's strange. There's no one perfect system. Um, I, I quite like Semver, and by and large, it does what I need of it. But there is no perfect system, really. Yeah, I like it as well. Just the whole zero ver being for like something is on zero version. Uh, zero dot something for 15 years like that doesn't make sense yeah all right so since we're talking about the 1.0 release of scikit-learn let me give a quick shout out to some of the new features or some of the features they're highlighting so it exposes many functions and methods which take lots of parameters like hist gradient boosting regressor use that all the time no not really but it takes i don't know was that 15 parameters like 20 0 255 none none false what <laughs> like what are these right and so a lot of these are moving to require you to explicitly say min sample leaf is 20, L2 yeah. regularization is zero, max bins is 255, like keyword arguments to make it more readable and clear. I, I like to make virtually all my arguments keyword only. I might have one or two positional arguments, uh, but the rest keyword only. I, I think um, it makes code uh, more descriptive. You can look at that code and then you know at a glance uh, what this argument does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it drives me nuts when there's like I want all the defaults except for like something special at the last one, and so I've got to like fill in all of them just to hit that. And also, I would love to throw out that this is way better than star star kwrgs. Way better, right? If if you've got ten optional parameters that have maybe defaults or don't need to have a specified value, make them keyword arguments. Means that the tooling like PyCharm and VS Code will show you autocomplete for for these. I mean, if it's truly open-ended and you don't know what could be passed, star star KWRs. But if you do know what could be passed, something like this is way better as well. Right? That very that much means, more Yeah, you have to type more. Um, if you've got like a signature which takes the same parameter as something else, um, you just have to type it all over again. It can be a bit tedious, um, but it's it's very beneficial, I think, for for the tooling, like you said. Indeed. Also for typing, right? You can say that this keyword argument thing is an integer and that one's a string, right? And if it's star star kwrgs, you're just any, any, great. Okay, or string any. Uh, okay, so we also have new spline transformers. So you can uh, create spline Bezier curves, which is cool. Uh, quintile regressor is updated. Feature name support. When you're doing an estimator passed to a pandas data frame during a fit, it will, uh, Estimator will set a feature names in attribute containing the feature names, right? So that's pretty cool. Some examples of that. A more flexible plotting API, online one class SVM for all sorts of cool graphs. Histogram-based gradient boosting models are stable and new documentation. And of course, you can launch it in a binder and, and play with it, which is pretty sweet. Congrats to the scikit-learn folks. That's very nice. And 
Uh, also kind of interesting to get your take on API changes and versioning and stuff, Will. Oh, before we move on, Brian, I saw a, a quick question that maybe makes sense to throw over to Will from Andre. Oh, God. <laughs> Everybody keeps asking this. So, so I've, I've uh, ordered a Windows for everyone laptop. Listening, the question is, when will there be Windows support for Textual? Yeah, um, I've ordered a Windows laptop. Um, I've been working on a, a VM, but it's, it's a pain uh, to work on a VM. I've ordered a Windows laptop, and that's going to arrive at uh, end of this month. Uh, and well, I don't know exactly when, but that'll, that'll definitely, I'll definitely need that to get started. And uh, in, theory, in theory, it should only be a week or two work. Um, so... How about I say this year? This year, <laughs> after the month of configuring your laptop. That's true. That's true. I haven't used Windows in I don't know how long, apart from a, a VM. Um, I need. Yeah, I'm going to test it with a new Windows terminal, which is actually really, really good. Um, yeah, the Windows I, I terminal think, is good. Yeah, I think it can be like a, a first class, like um, textual platform. <laughs> uh, uh, the Mac works great. Linux works great. Windows has always been like a bit of a black sheep. Um, but the new Windows terminal is is a godsend because the old terminal was frankly terrible. It hadn't been updated in decades. Yeah, the the old school one is no good. But the new Windows terminal is really good. Uh, also, uh, just a quick shout out uh, for some support here. Nice comment, Tushar. Windows support will be provided when you click the pink button on Will's GitHub profile, aka the sponsor button. <laughs> yes. I'm sure it's not a ransom, mind. I promise. Uh, I, I do intend to do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How about some server stuff? I we've we talked. I can't remember. I think several times talked about how to use how to develop packages while you're offline. Like let's say you're on an airplane or at the beach or something with no Wi-Fi. I mean, maybe there's Wi-Fi at the beach, but not, not at the beaches I go to. Uh, so um, that's because you live in Oregon, and some of the most <laughs> rural parts are the beach. If this was California, you'd have five G. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could tether my phone to it or something, but you know, anyway. So uh, Jason Coombs uh, sent over an article um, using DevPy as an offline PyPI cache. And I, I got to tell you, to be honest, that I don't know if it's just the documentation for DevPy or the other tutorials. It just like threw out a few commands and, and they're like, that's, that, you're good. That's, that'll work. And I just never got it. I've tried and it just didn't work for me, but this did. So this, uh, this tutorial is just a straightforward, okay, we're just going to walk you through exactly everything you do it's really not that much uh for instance uh he, he suggests using pipx to install uh devpy server uh which is nice um, the t-bump then, uh package as well suggested installing itself with pipx pipx is gaining a lot of momentum well especially things like well like uh yeah t-bump or uh well uh or devpy i don't know if i do it with t-bump because i want other package maintainers to be able to use it too but anyway uh, this is definitely something you're just using on your own machine, so why not let it sit there? Um, and then, so you install it, uh, you init it, uh, and it creates some stuff. I don't know what it does when you init it. Um, but then you, uh, hidden in here is uh, you run DevPy server also then. So it really is just a few commands, and you get a server running. But there's nothing in it. It's, there's there's no cache in it yet. So then you have to, you have to go somewhere else, um, and then... Uh, prime it so you've got a local host and you that it, it it reports so you can export that as your pip index and then just create a virtual environment and start installing stuff that's all you got to do and now now it's all primed and then what you do is you turn off when next time when you're when you don't have any wi-fi um you uh turn off uh 
you can run the DevPy server as, where is it, DevPy offline mode. Um, and then there you have it. You've got uh, a cache of everything you need. Cool. So I tried this out um, uh, just on like, like, you know, installing PyTest with one of my plugins and then uh, set it in offline mode. And then uh, try in the all the installing the normal stuff that I just did worked fine into a new new virtual environment. But then when I tried to do something like uh, install requests that I didn't have yet or something else, it just said, "Oh, that's not it's not a that I can't find it or something." It's a happy failure. So anyway, this this instruction worked great. I, I know DevPy can be do a whole bunch of other stuff, but I don't need it to do a whole bunch of stuff myself. I just need it to be a PyPI cache. And so this is pretty yeah, this is really neat. The init looks like it creates the database schema as well as allows you to set up set up a user. Okay. I guess you could you set it up with some authentication that no one can mess with it and stuff like that. Apparently, this works just fine for teams. So you can set up um, set up a server on like a on just like a computer that in your network that um, just runs as a cache, and then you can point everybody can point to the same one. So I mean that 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 would work as a a really quick and dirty and not too dirty just a fairly quick way for a local team to to have a caching server um i'd probably even think about doing this for testing uh even on one machine so that you can have multiple like you know completely clean out your environments and still run uh run a test machine and not hit the network so much if you're, if you're pulling a lot of a lot of different stuff henry schreiner out in the live stream says can we also mention that jason the article we're just talking about also maintains 148 libraries, including setup tools on PyPI. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so may know something about interacting with PyPI. <laughs> that's phenomenal. I don't know how he finds the time, to be honest. 148 packages. Um, he needs close, close Ember. <laughs> yeah, he needs a lot of close Ember. <laughs> awesome. All right, Well, what's this uh, last one you got for us here? Sure. So I, I found this uh, project uh, on Reddit. Um, it's called PyPy Command Line. And I noticed it in particular because it used Rich, but it is a, a pretty cool project. Um, it's notable because the, the author is 14 years old. Like, that's blown me away. Um, could be that young. And he's, he's done a very good job of it. Uh, so it's an interface to PyPy from the command line. Um, you can do things like um, get the top, top 10 packages. Um, you can search for packages. Um, you can... So here's, um, I think that's a search, oh, PyPy search rich, and that's uh, given all the packages that have got rich in, in the name. Uh, it's got the description and everything and, and the date. And here you can, uh, PyPy info Django, that gives you some nice information about the Django package, which it pulls from PyPy. Like uh, the GitHub stars, the download traffic, mm, what it depends yeah. upon, uh, it, meta information like its license and who owns it. This is really cool. Yeah, it's just, it's really nice. Um, here we have the description, and that's rendered in that renders the markdown right in the terminal. Um, I wonder how it does that. <laughs> um, I, I couldn't hazard a guess. It's it's, it's got to use Rich, right? <laughs> I think it might. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so it's, it makes good use of Rich. That's how I how I noticed it. But it is a, a very cool project in its own right. It also uses um, questionary. Uh, so that's like a a uh, terminal thing for for selecting stuff from a, from the menu, um, so it does a bit dynamically and also has like a, a command line uh, to do it more from the the all the terminal. Yeah, I think it's well worth uh, checking out. I think I want to check it out just for an example of using 
using this sort of a workflow, not necessarily with PyPI, but with just sort of copying the codes. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really nice looking terminal user interface type thing. I think it could be really interesting for you and me, Brian, to just do like info on the various things we're talking about, right? That'll, that might be fun to pull up as well. Yeah. And there's ton, there's actually tons of times where I don't, I don't really want to pull up a web browser just to put up. But I do want more information. Just the help gives me. I I love the web, but sometimes it, you have to do a context switch if you're in the terminal. You're, yeah. you're, you're writing commands, and then you've got to like uh, switch windows and and find the title, the bar, and then type everything in. And um, it's it's just a little bit of effort, but it can kind of like interrupt your your flow when you are working. Yeah, I mean, especially when you got like the whole. I've got like a big monitor, and I've got them all everything in place exactly where I want it, and there's no web browser. So if I want to look something yeah. up, I gotta like you know interrupt that. Yeah, or or the the browser you want is there, but it's behind a dozen other windows, dozen other web browsers typically. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a good find, and uh, well done to this this guy who wrote it at such a young age. Very cool. Oh, I was just gonna ask you if you have an extras uh, thing. So yep. Uh, do I have any extras? Ta-da! Here's my little banner extras. I I do have some actually, Brian. Uh, quick shout out. Um, Madison sent over a notice to let us know that High Cascades 2022, their call for proposals is out. So if people want to sign up for that, um, it closes October 24th. So you know, make haste. You've got four days. But yeah, still. Um, PFP closes in four days. Yeah. So if you're thinking oh, of proposing something, you got three days. Talks are 25 minutes long. It was a lot of fun. You know, we both attended this conference a few times. It In the before times, it was in Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver. Uh, I think this, I'm not sure what the story is with this one. If it's, it's going to be in person. Again, I think it's I remote, think. right? Yeah. I think so, at least. I hope I'm not wrong. Yeah, I think you're right. Then um, have you got your MacBook, your uh, M1 Max? Have you ordered that yet? I want one, but no. <laughs> the $3,000. Well, I would love one, but I have no idea what I'd do with it. You know, I'll, I just work in the terminal most of the time. Um, hey, you know, it has that new Pro, was it ProRes? Pro, something display where it has 120 adaptive uh, display, hertz display. So, you know, maybe. I think my monitor only does 60, so I don't know if I could use it. But um, I have actually got texture running at 120 frames per second, um, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. I, I did end up ordering one. And um, on my Apple account, I have this really cool message. It says, your order will be available soon. MacBook Pro, available ship available to ship null. So uh, we'll see where that goes. <laughs> <laughs> see where that goes. Did but you I put think, null uh, as your address? <laughs> I should have. Think how many people's orders I would be getting. I would get just like a stack of boxes outside. Did that at Amazon or something. Yeah. Uh, and then I think also I want to give a quick shout out to this thing, this... Um, Code Weaver's crossover, which allows you to run Windows apps natively on Mac OS without a virtual machine. It's, wow. like a, it's like an intermediate layer. So I think that that kind of stuff is going to get real popular, especially since the new M1s have like a super crappy story for Windows as a virtual machine because Windows has a crappy ARM story <laughs> and you can only do ARM VMs over there. So I think that uh, things like this are going to become really popular. There's a bunch of cool stuff. If people haven't checked out this crossover stuff, I haven't really done much in it, but it looks super promising. I've like been on the verge of like, I almost need this, but I just run in a VM. That's that. Anyway, those are my extras. Okay. Well, I've got uh, a couple. Um, we've we brought up Starship once. I just I broke down and I'm using Starship now. It looks working nice. And one of the things that installed when I when I grew installed Starship, it also installed PyEnv. I'm not sure why. So I started using PyEnv also. It 
with still and Python works great. I like it on my Mac, but I still don't think it belongs in Python tutorials. Uh, anyway, uh, verdict's still <laughs> out on me whether or not it's any better than just downloading off of org. You're going to get tweets, Brian. You're going to get tweets. <laughs> but I, I agree with you. I support uh, you on this endeavor. So, uh, one of the things that was announced today is uh, VS Code.dev is a thing. Um, so I thought it was already there, but apparently this is new. Um, if you go to VS Code.dev, uh, it is uh, just VS Code in the browser. Oh, interesting. I think it where was does it execute there. and where, where where's your file system and stuff like that? Well, I think it's the same as like the the uh, the GitHub code. You spaces. press dot. Yeah. Okay, got it. Um, so it can use the local file system though, which I think is a difference. Um, GitHub had this thing where you, you hit dot and it, it brought up a, a VS Code which worked with the files in your repo. But I think with this, um, it can actually use your local uh, file system. Wow. Which, yeah, which makes it more interesting. I mean, it's great if you work on another computer and you just pop it open. You've got all your settings there, and yeah, exactly. uh, boom, you're ready to go. Yeah. Oh, that that actually is quite a bit different than that's pretty cool. Yeah, two use cases for me that that I think I would use this that seem really nice. One is I'm working like say on my daughter's computer. She's like, Dad, help me with this file. You know, there's help me with something, and I've got to open some file in a way that has some form of structure. And I, you know, she doesn't have VS Code set up on her computer. She's in middle school. She doesn't care. Uh, but I could just fire this up and you know look at some file in a non-terrible way. Yeah. Right. That would be great. The other is on my iPad. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, there's not a good, super good story for that, but this kind of, like, VS Code in the browser, other things in the browser, they seem really nice. Or if I was on a Chromebook or something like that, right? If I was trying to help somebody with code on a Chromebook, that'd be good. How about you, Will? Do you have any extras for us? Here we go. Um, Python multi-threading uh, without the GIL. GIL stands for uh, Global Interpreter Lock, and it's something which prevents uh, Python threads from truly running in parallel. Um, it's People have been talking about this for years, and I've got a bit kind of, you know, uh, dismissive because every time it comes up, it never seems to happen because um, there's quite a lot of trade-offs generally. Um, if you get rid of the gill, uh, you hurt single-threaded uh, performance, and most things are single-threaded. Uh, but this um, looks like uh, the author, uh, Sam Gross, has, has come up with uh, a way of removing the gill without hurting uh, single-threaded performance. I think they've got, um, it's to do with reference counting. They've got two references, reference counts, one for uh, the thread which owns the object and one for all the other threads. And it, apparently it's, it's, it works quite well. And the great thing about yeah, this is... That's, that's super creative to basically think of like, well, let's treat um, the ref count as a thread local storage. And probably when that hits zero, you're like, okay, well, let's go look at the other threads and see if they're also zero, right? Yeah, yeah. And... If this goes ahead, and it's got um, quite a lot of support, I think, in the core dev community, I don't keep a, a really strong eye on that, but um, from what I hear, it's, it's um, got a lot of support. And if, if that lands, then we can get a fantastic performance out of multi-threaded code. You know, if you've got 20 threads, uh, you could get almost 20 times uh, performance, so that, that could be huge. Um, I've no doubt there'll be a lot of technical hurdles um, from uh, C libraries, and things, um, but I'm really excited about that. I think um, you know, performance improvements are single-threaded. They, they, they come in little fits and starts. You know, we get 5% here, 10% here, and it's all very welcome. Um, but if this lands, then we can get like 20 times for certain types of computing tasks. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited. I hope this one, this one uh, lands. I mean, you're talking about this. 
oh, here, let's let's get this multi-thread stuff. You know, you were just saying, what are we going to do with these new M1 Pros and M1 Max? I mean, 10 core machines, 30, 32 core GPUs. There's a lot of a lot of stuff that's significantly difficult to take advantage of with Python, unless something like this comes into existence, right? Exactly. If you have 10 cores, chances are you'll just use one of them. Um, I'm wondering if, if this goes in, whether it'll change, we'll need some other ways of taking advantage of that because um, uh, I think at the moment for most tasks, you'd have to explicitly create and launch threads. Um, I wonder if there'll be advances where uh, Python could just launch threads in things which could be easily parallelized. Um, maybe I'm, I'm hoping for, for too much, but I've, I've no doubt there'll be some kind of like software solution to help you just um, launch threads and like use all those cores that in your shiny new, new Max. <laughs> there's a lot of interesting stuff that you can do with async and await. And there's also some cool thread scheduler type things. But I think the, you know, much like Python 3 when type annotations came along, there was a whole bunch of stuff that blossomed that took advantage of it, like Pydantic and Fast API and stuff. I feel like that that blossoming hasn't happened because you're really limited by the gill of the CPU level. And then you go multi-processing and you have like a data exchange and compatibility issues. But if this were to go through, all of a sudden people are like, all right, now how do we create these libraries that we've wanted all along? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's it. I think um, once we've got over that technical hurdle, um, all, the, all the library authors um, will be like looking for like creative ways of, of using this um, for speeding code up and for just doing more with your Python. Yeah, I mean, with, the, mm. with every programming language, the jump from single-threaded to multi-process is a huge overhead so you don't do it lightly but you could do it lightly with multi-threads you don't, you don't have such a huge uh, overhead burden with threads it's very exciting i was also super excited about this so i'm glad you gave it a shout out we'll probably come back and spend some more time on it at some point <laughs> yeah and uh where is it uh somebody said uh, one of the exciting things about it is we didn't say no immediately <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good sign <laughs> Yeah, which has not been the case with some of these other ones because they were willing to sacrifice single-threaded performance to get better multi-core performance. They're like, you know, this is not a common enough use case that we're willing to do that. I think actually um, the, the solution the author came up with, um, it did reduce single-threaded um, performance, but he also added some unrelated um, optimizations, which speeded it back up again. Um, exactly. So where I'm when... sorry, I fixed it, but yeah. 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 Interesting. Oh. One more thought know. on this really quick. Uh, David pushing out in the live stream says, the galectomy is like nuclear fusion. It's always 10 years away. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's, hopefully it's, it's not 10. It's possible, but I think this is the biggest possibility since then. Two, two interesting things, maybe already taking into account that Guido looked at it and didn't say no immediately. Two, this is a project from, this is a project Sam's working on, but it's supported by Facebook where he works. And so there's like a lot of time and energy. It's not just a side project. Third, uh, Larry Hastings, Hastings, the guy who was doing the galectomy, commented on this thread saying, you've made way more progress than I did. Well done, Sam. So these are all good signs. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Ryan, are ready laugh. for our joke? Yeah. A laugh? Definitely. See, this is optimistic because they're not always that funny. <laughs> but I'm going to give it a try. This one is for the web developers out there, for those folks that work on APIs and probably have been working for a long time on them. So uh, the first one I got for us, I just found another one I'm going to throw in from uh, Inspired by the Livestream. But this one is entitled The Torture Never Stops. <laughs> All right? Okay. So it's a 
every one of these, it's four different pictures in this cartoon. There's a there's a different developers at, up at the board describing some new way to talk to web servers from your app. So way back in 2000, it says SOAP, Simple abje- Object Access Protocol. SOAP makes programming easier. And the that developer and the audience <sighs> like, WTF is SOAP. Oh, come on. What is this? Crazy namespaces in XML. Skip ahead 10 years. Now there's a developer up here saying REST, representational state transfer. REST is better than SOAP. The developer now has WTF was wrong with SOAP. <laughs> <laughs> 2015, GraphQL. GraphQL is more versatile than REST. WTF, I was just getting the hang of REST. <laughs> 2018, GRPC. GRPC is faster than GraphQL. WTF, I thought you knew by now that torture never stops. <laughs> Says like the guy next to the other developer that's been complaining for 20 years. <laughs> I think that, that hits a bit too close to home, but if you're a yeah, JavaScript that developer, that gets compressed into like the last six months, I think. <laughs> that's right. You, you've lived it really hard and really yeah. intensely. Nick says, let's just start over with soap. Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. All right. And then we were talking about uh, VS Code.dev and how you just press dot in your browser in GitHub or how you go to that URL and so on, how cool it was. And somebody said, oh, it doesn't work in Safari. So I want to come back to this joke that used to be applied to IE. <laughs> but, but now I think it should be applied to Safari. Like genuinely, I think it should be. Is It's... <laughs> The browser wars as a cartoon. So there's Chrome and Firefox. It's a little dated because Firefox is not as popular as it used to be, sadly. But it's like Chrome and Firefox are fiercely fighting and like IE is in the corner eating glue. <laughs> I just feel like that needs a little Safari icon and we'd be good. Yeah. We'd be uh, all up to date in 2021. How do you know it's IE? Uh, it has a He's little E on e it and a backwards. window symbol. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, the E, of course, is backwards because the shirt's probably on backwards or something. Also, it's eating glue. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, funny. So, um, thanks, Will, for joining us today. This was a really Thank fun you. show. It's thanks everybody fun, yeah. in the chat for your, all the great comments. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Will. See y'all later. Thanks. Thanks, right. guys. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes, as in B Y T E S. Get the full show notes over at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item we should cover, just visit pythonbytes.fm and click submit in the nav bar. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. If you want to join us for the live recording, just visit the website and click live stream to get notified of when our next episode goes live. That's usually happening at noon Pacific on Wednesdays over at YouTube. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.